Hey everybody, this is Dave Broadbeck coming to you from my podcast studio, which is actually my daughter's old bedroom. Anyway, uh, coming up, Psychology 3256, Advanced Univariate uh, Statistics. used to be called Design and Analysis, but that was a stupid name, so we changed it. Uh, I hope you like it. This is for fall of 2019, by the way. And uh, like it or not, look, you have to know stats. So uh, enjoy. So if you're watching this in the video, we just had a break from the week, and then we also um, had a snow day. <laughs> so you missed it, internet loser. So, my, my, my viewers love me. But anyway, so we were talking last time about this factorial mouse severance. <clears throat> By the way, does this look, look to anybody like a curling rink? Hurry! Uh, there's something on the board. That's what I'm saying. So, we have these. For some reason, this is missing here, but that's going to be B minus 1, levels of B minus 1. So, that's the, the degrees of freedom. So, total number of degrees of freedom in any design is always the number of observations minus 1. And then you can partition that. So, levels of A minus 1, levels of B minus 1. A minus 1 times B minus 1, and then A plus B times little a minus 1. Little a is the number of sub subjects per group. Okay? And then on top, all these are basically are sums of squares. On top, mean square, uh, sorry, three is written in the bottom, so you get sum of square and mean square. So don't worry about the n times q, n times p. Theoretically, it clearly matters calculationally, which I don't think is a word, it matters. But the important thing to note is what, what is inside the brackets here. So you've got uh, the means for all the groups, all the A groups, like A1, A2, A3, whatever, minus the grand mean, the Bs minus the grand mean. Um, individual scores, and no, that shouldn't be that actually, that should be, yeah, rows, columns, and then we add the grand mean back in because you've taken it out basically. The important thing is all these are just deviations from a grand mean. Okay? So, one of the things we want to look at, remember before we looked at the expected values of, uh, for our one-way analysis, which was, remember the expected value of mean squared treatment was anywhere, is there an eraser? Yeah, there is. So, with the sort of one-way analysis variance, the expected value mean squared treatment is, in essence, treatment plus error, and the expected value of mean squared error is just error. Okay? So we could then take mean squared treatment divided by mean squared error, and what that allows you to do is sort of isolate the treatment effect. Okay? So, I that written right there. Why did I do that? So yeah, we just divide mean squared treatment by mean squared error to find out if we have an effect. That's how it basically works with the one-way analysis of variance. We're going to do something exceedingly similar here for the factorial analysis of variance. So we have to have something for mean squared A, for mean squared B, mean squared A, B, of course, mean squared A. So we have to get what the expected values are. And they're not going to surprise you. So 
The expected value of mean squared A, uh, a is variance due to A, alpha, plus epsilon. The expected value of mean squared B is beta plus epsilon. You can probably guess that the expected value of AB is alpha beta plus epsilon. And of course, the expected value of mean squared error is error. Okay. There might be a typo in the notes. If I haven't updated it, I know I updated this. If it looks like that, it's fine. So ignore it. So far, we're going to divide A by error, B by error, AB by error. That, that isolates the effect of A, the effect of B, and the interaction effect. Easy. Right? So it's a really simple thing to do. All these, we're going to do three F tests in one analysis, but we're always dividing by the same thing. We're always dividing by mean squared error. Now, however, whenever I say something's easy, there's always a however. Those expected values actually only work when you are only interested in those very levels of A and B and no other levels. What? How could that be? How could it be that what I'm interested in affects math? That's not actually what it is. It's, it sort of works the other way. If you had randomly chosen the levels, if you'd randomly chosen the levels, then you could generalize to all possible levels. Does that make sense? If I'm, let's think of it this way. If, if, I, if I want to generalize to people, I can't use this classroom. This is, this is not representative of the humans, right? There's more women than men. There's more white people than anything. That doesn't, that's not humanity. If we randomly choose people, then we can generalize to all people. Does that make sense? Well, why wouldn't that be also the case with levels of experiment? Well, in fact, it is. So if you're doing an experiment, technically, you should randomly choose the levels of the variable you want. So let's say you want to look at retention intervals in a memory experiment. And when you do something like that, you, in fact, very often, and how I've done this, geez, there's all these things in my way. Okay. It could also be because I can't see, but it, I think there's things in my way all the time. So let's say you choose like five minutes and one hour and 24 hours. The scale's really off, but whatever. And you get that. Let's see you get that. What you're going to probably do is draw a graph that looks like this. And what's the implication? That I can look at along the x-axis and go, oh, it'll be that or that. We connect the dots. But you really shouldn't do that. We all do it. <laughs> but you really shouldn't do it. Was it my little dance of Thanks. <laughs> it's something that we all do, but we actually shouldn't. 
if we want to talk about all the possible values between five minutes and 24 hours, we should have a random number generator pick four or five levels. That's going to be hard, and it's actually not going to be something we're ever going to do. So, the expected values I just showed, showed, showed you, those very sensible ones, are only true if those are the only values of a variable you're interested in. It's called a fixed effects model. Okay. So for a fixed effects model, those expected values are true. So, okay. the, so the dots are true with the lines. The lines, the, those lines, the, the, putting that line in there, you're actually lying. <laughs> What you're doing is you're saying to people, oh yeah, you could also say obviously that in between there and there you get that, and you don't know that. Okay. You don't know that. It's probably true. The world almost certainly works like that. There have been enough experiments on retention interval and memory that I can tell you that that's what a freaking forgetting curve looks like. Across species, I mean, that's, but, but from your one experiment, you probably can't, you can't make that conclusion. What if we did randomly choose the levels? What happens then? If we actually truly randomly choose them, then we add another, I don't want to say source of variation, because that means something very technical. We're adding, <coughs> there's a new wrinkle. Let's just say that. So in fact, a random effects model, where we've randomly chosen the levels of A and B, whatever A and B are, the expected value of A changes to alpha plus alpha beta plus epsilon. The expected value of B changes to beta plus alpha beta plus epsilon. The expected value for the interaction, you know, thankfully, stays the same. The expected value for error stays the same. So in this case, if we have randomly chosen our levels, we divide mean squared A by the interaction mean squared, mean squared B by the interaction mean squared, and AB by mean squared error. So the way we do actually do the, the statistical test changes. Weird, right? But actually, when you think about it, there's this extra bit of randomness that the math is taking into account to figure out the expected values. That's why the expected values change. Crazy. What if we have? Why did we do that? Okay. What if we have a mixed model? A is fixed and B is random. Do that. It looks like this. Expected value for mean squared A is A alpha plus alpha beta plus epsilon. Expected value for B is beta plus epsilon. Alpha beta is alpha beta plus epsilon, and expected value of these square error is still error. So if A is fixed and B is random, why is A the one that has the alpha beta added to it? Math. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it just, it, it, it's, and that's one of those that's beyond the scope of the course okay. discussions. I know that it, that looks wrong. Yeah, yeah it, it's completely counterintuitive, yeah. but it's right. Believe me, when making up the notes for doing this course years ago, I reread all my old notes from graduate school. I reread a chap two chapters in a book thinking, I know I must have this wrong. No, I don't. The world's weird. 
So that's called a mixed model. That's a mixed model. model, we are assuming that all the levels of the random factor were truly chosen at random or something approaching random. Okay. We need to fix them. It's probably a better way to say it if you want to get into sort of practicalities is that we didn't fix the levels. It's not going to happen that often. The this is not going to happen that often for the kind of work that any of us here will do or will do. So that'd be randomly selected independent of each other. It's an extra assumption that's thrown in with, with a, any random effect. What we're usually doing is a kind of random sort of mixed model kind of sort of. We typically are doing a fixed model. That's the analysis we do. That's the default of anybody's analysis. And that's what 95% of the people who use analysis variance actually don't even know this stuff. Because they learned it at some point, forgot it, or they didn't pay attention, or they didn't learn it. <laughs> so people don't actually tend to even think about this stuff. The people who think about this stuff tend to be really into statistics or actual statisticians. When is this going to matter? There are times when you might do this. Let's say, I don't know, I think the, the book has an example, I think, or it's another book, I don't know, of testing tire wear. Why do you do that? Well, you're a tire company. And you have people get these tires, different uh, compounds of rubber, and you test the wear, and let's put city in there as another factor, right? So you can have five levels. Could be here, it could be Vancouver, it could be Quebec City. Uh, let's think of various weather patterns in the country. Uh, Windsor and Calhoun. Did you randomly choose those? Probably not. But do you want to generalize to all possible Canadian driving conditions? Yeah, you do. And those choices you made, while not random, are kind of like how we choose subjects in an experiment. Right? Typically, what we do is say, you want to be in my experiment? <laughs> Please sign the thing, and then have a chance of winning a $3 gift card. Now, please do the super factory. You're not. We don't choose those people at random, but because typically in, we're talking about sort of uh, fundamental properties of things. So it's like, well, while that doesn't represent humans, we can certainly say that everybody's cognition works roughly the same, we're cool. Same sort of thing here. We didn't randomly choose the cities really, but we didn't just pick those cities and no others and only care about those cities. So in that case, you might use a mixed model. So it shows up sometimes in kind of field work. 
or it should. Very often it doesn't. So people make some mistakes with those kind of things in their analysis. And usually at their own, um, they miss effects that are there. I've reviewed the paper for a journal a couple times and, and seen that uh, this should be a random effects model. They just, you know, you see the analysis there, so I'll just divide that by that. And I tell people, no, you have a significant effect. You just did your math wrong. So did you really randomly select the levels or do something similar? I like to think of it again the same way we select subjects for an experiment. If you did that, then yes, use the random effects calculations. Any other time, just use the fixed effects ones. Okay. It's a strange thing to think of, but it actually is a real issue. And it will come up again, and it will do something, it will allow us to do something very cool. So, well, I think it's cool, you guys probably don't care. Because you guys are mean. A lot of you. Okay, I don't know what that extra bullet point was there for. So your analysis variance summary table looks something like this. A, B, A by B, an error. There's degrees of freedom. Uh, there's your mean squares. And there's the F, how you calculate the Fs. Of course, that's for fixed effects only. But you will hardly, I bet, anybody in here who goes on and does science for a living, I bet you never use a random effects one or a mixed one. It's just so vanishingly rare to, to use. Because usually you aren't randomly choosing places. Or even sort of quasi-randomly. Again, are you choosing the same way we choose subjects for an experiment? That's, that's sort of the rule of thumb I, I would use. And if you are, then fine. The crazy field experiment that I'm doing along with Jen Foot right now, we have like three different locations for these feeders, uh, for clusters of feeders. We didn't really randomly choose them. And also, because the weather's been so bad, I think what we've determined is birds don't like bad weather, which is not really groundbreaking. It's not groundbreaking. But, and we're not going to use analysis variance anyway. But if I was, in that case, I'd probably say, yeah, we should probably analyze that that way. Questions so far? I know this is a little weird. It's a little wild. Different. Okay. Hey, let's make the design bigger. So let's shift gears from something strange and esoteric, frankly, to something sensible. Something you might do. Something quite possibly that you will do. Something that if you go to the psychology slash biology honors thesis conference in March, which you should. All of us together talking about life science. It's going to be awesome. You will see designs that have three independent variables. They're never from my students. I don't let people have more than two. I just tell them, can you think in three? Can you think in three-dimensional graphs? Good. You can do it. No, you can't. I can think about three three-way interactions, but it's hard for them. What do we have here? We got ABC. G1, G2, G3, so one group, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. We've got, this is a two by two by two. 
Okay? Interpreting these kind of interactions can be difficult. So you got this is a three factor design. So now you have three main effects, alpha, beta, and gamma or ABC. You have three two-way interactions, ABAC and BC, and you've got a three-way interaction, ABC. I'm not going to go into expected values for these things because it will it will well, we'll be here for the, for the end of forever. A three-way interaction is what the two-way interactions change depending upon some third variable. Okay? So it's when the two-way interactions change depending upon some third variable. So you get something like this. Okay. So think about a two-way interaction. So something like that. You go, okay, yeah, that's a two-way, that's a beautiful two-way interaction, right? The, the effect of B changes depending upon the level of A. Well, let's make it now a three-way interaction. <coughs> say this is C1. Here are the results of C2. There's two different two-way interactions. Those two-way interactions change depending upon the level of C of the third variable. Okay? This is not an uncommon kind of design, two by two by two. You'll, you'll see, like I said, if you go to the uh, Otter Street, the Life Sciences and, and Environment uh, Thesis Conference, you will see three-factor designs. Almost certain of it. Think about real world examples. Two kinds of memory tasks, implicit and explicit. One that's explicit, that's like I have you recall words. Implicit is filling in blanks. Right? And in that, what happens is the implicit is steady and the explicit drops. That's a two way interaction. What's the three way interaction? I don't know. One group is normals, and the other group have hippocampal lesions because they've bumped their heads or they've got, you know, they've had a stroke. Their implicit memory is normal, and their explicit memory basically doesn't exist. That's a three-way interaction right there. The two-way interaction between time, that's the forgetting part, and memory test type changes depending upon if they have the hippocampus or it's a very common kind of thing. It's not uncommon at all. Okay. Questions about that? Do you understand the idea of three-way interaction? Yeah? Okay. So the model's a little different now. Now the model is x equals mu plus alpha plus beta plus gamma plus alpha beta plus alpha gamma plus beta gamma plus alpha beta gamma plus epsilon. Right? A, B, C, A, B, A, C, B, C, A, B, C. Error. So just the model gets bigger, that's all. 
So what are you doing here? You're actually testing gonna have an A effect, a B effect, a C effect, an A, B interaction, an A, C interaction, B, C interaction, an A, B, C interaction. So now you're doing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven F tests in one analysis. Seven F tests in one analysis. Wow. It's totally doable. Again, when you think of an example like the one I gave, there's all kinds of little things like that. Think about uh, in, in, in learning, when well, you might look at, uh, again, time is one of the variables, task, and uh, sex differences, right? So, in fact, oh, yeah, yeah. They, again, they, they drilled on the board, and I have one right here. So there's, we have, a, that's an ABC interaction. The two-way interactions change depending upon the level of the third variable. A 27-way interaction is the 26-way interactions change depending upon the level of some 27th variable. I've never seen one that big. I have seen four-way interactions. So this, now you're going to have D1 and D2, so you have this panel and another one, and it's going to be the three-way interactions change depending upon the level of the fourth variable. I don't like experiments like that because I can't. I find it very difficult to think in four dimensions. It's hard. Three is okay. Two by two by two, or three by three by three, or six by six by nine. I don't care. But when you start to get into more than that, I find it difficult. So, okay. These kind of designs. What are some good things about them? these factorial designs. We can study interactions, and most of, uh, so many theories in behavioral sciences generally, in life sciences really, generally involve interactions, two things coming together, right? So much of what we talk about involves two variables acting together, doing more than they would do on their own. Once you've done this a few times, it's actually pretty easy to interpret these things. And again, when you think of a real-world example and you have a graph in front of you, you say, oh, I see what you're talking about. So they're not horrible to, do, to interpret. Of course, there's got to be a downside. Is it a fixed model, a random model, or a mixed model? Now, again, as I said, no one really cares about this. No one pays attention to it. But there are times when you should, and it will change your analysis. It's going to be rare in the kind of work that most of us do. Also, these things can get very big very fast. Okay. So, if we did let's throw in D. Right? So we got A, B, C, D now. So we got A, B, A by B, C, C by A, C by B, C by A by B, D, D by A, D by B. 
by A by B, D by C, D by C by A, So now you're doing 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Now you're doing 15 uh, F tests with one design. And that's going to double in size if we throw in a fifth factor. Right? A plus one. Wow. So this can get exceedingly complicated. That starts to get complicated into. Interpret to keep straight in your head, frankly. Now, if you know exactly what you're expecting and all you're going to care about is a four way interaction, I, I don't. Actually, old prof of mine. In fact, he taught me basically this course when I was undergrad at Western. He had this whole thing about um, sex and handedness and spatial tasks, and it was one of the variable. And he, all he expected was a pure form of interaction, and he got it. But it's the only time I know of that happening, and I can't even remember the example. He was quite a guy, by the way. He um, didn't have an undergrad degree, just a PhD. Yeah. So we'd always look at the beginning of the year, but your profs, you'd always look, and you'd say, oh, because it would say the beginning of school. I went up to him, I said, Dr. Hirschman, He's like, you can call me Richard. Okay, Richard. Why are you, where, your undergrad degree's not listed? Well, I, I, I kind of dropped out. Like, really? Yeah. It's the 60s. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're working on factor analysis. I don't know if you know what factor analysis is, but it's a really complicated statistical thing. And I found a mistake yet, so I corrected it. Oh, just did that as an undergrad. Okay? Yeah, I wasn't going to school anymore, but I thought I'd get it published, so I sent it off to the journal, and he said, this is a horrible journal article, but it'd make a good PhD dissertation. Come take classes with me. I guess it was in Berkeley. Of course he was. <laughs> and uh, it'll give you a PhD. So that's how I got my PhD. Okay. So that's, by the way, that's not a career advice. That's not how you do it. You don't do research for three years, do a lot of acid, drop out of everything, and go, I should publish that stuff I wrote. And then they give, I'll give you a PhD. The world was different then. He used to quote Dylan in a class like this. He'd say, so does this remind anybody of a Dylan song? Well, I don't know. It's like you know that something's happening, but you don't know what it is. <laughs> That's him talking about four-way interactions. He was amazing. Talking a lot, that guy. So that's the one example. The guy who doesn't have an undergrad degree is the only time I ever think of someone looking for a pure four-way interaction. And they're showing it to the class. And we're all like, okay. So that's the downside, is they can get very big very fast. And then it becomes very difficult to if you Let's say you're looking for a four-way interaction. You find it. That's great, but then you find a bunch of main effects, and oh, hell, now you're screwed. Like, if you want just pure four-way, that's great. All right, questions on this? Because I can show you some SPSS in a moment. All right.
today won't say what tomorrow will be. I thought that I'd showed it. I guess it's front row weight. Watch, you'll see. And if you say.
Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da- uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh- uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcasts, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time.